This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. Feeling the blues after all the great content from Saster Annual 2019 has come and gone? Join us in Paris for Saster Europa, coming up June 12th and 13th. Up today, Breck's co-founder and CEO, Henrique Dubagras. Hi everyone, it's uh, really great to be here. Enrique, I know that we, when you first applied to YC, you actually applied with a VR startup idea. So can you talk a little bit about the early days of, you know, going through that idea iteration phase and how did you decide to launch Brex? So, you know, both Pedro and I'm a co-founder. We, we were born and raised in Brazil. And, you know, uh, we started out, we were both coders, you know, and um, I, I started coding by the time, like, I was, like, around 12, Pedro when he was nine. And, you know, we both kind of like worked in tech and tried to start tech companies while we were teenagers. And, you know, in, in the end of 2012 or beginning of 2013, we actually met and decided to start one called Pogarma that actually worked, which was a payments company back in Brazil uh, that did, you know, payment processing like Stripe, Braintree, WePay, all those, you know, that's the U.S. versions of the company. And, you know, and uh, we grew that company for a while um, and, and sold it in September 2016. Uh, and came to college, and after college, you know, not after the four years of college, after three months of college, um, we decided that we wanted to start a company, and we were tired of payments. We're like, we're not going to go into this payments thing, you know, we all have all these, like, banks, and they're, like, a pain to deal with, like, it's a big, you know, a lot of trouble. We're going to go into the bleeding edge of technology, and the bleeding edge of technology was, like, VR. VR seems super cool, and seems like the next thing that's going to happen. Um, so, you know, so we applied to YC with this, you know, VR idea, um, which looking back, it was like pretty bad, but at the time we thought it was great. And within YC, you know, we were like, yeah, we don't even know where to start to build this. It's, it was, you know, uh, pretty complicated. So we started to look for other stuff to do like within YC. And we circled through a few ideas until, you know, we, we, we got some feedback that we should start a company that we as founders have an unfair advantage by starting that company. And we felt, well, we know a lot about fintech, right? We know a lot about payments, you know, that might be an area. And we figured out there was all these, like, startups in YC that, you know, couldn't get a credit card and had raised millions of dollars. And we thought that was super dumb. Like, why can't they get a credit card if they raise, mm-hmm. you know, millions of dollars? And, you know, that's kind of how, you yeah. know, working through with the YC partners, we, we came to the idea of Brex. Yeah, and I think two things that you mentioned there. One, actually, when uh, Enrique and Pedro applied, they were class of 2020 Stanford. So uh, it was literally the first year. And I think when we went through the application, it was like, why are these people actually doing VR as an idea, given, you know, everything they've done in the past is something in fintech. So it's very interesting you mentioned that. You know, it's something we look at very actively in YC applications is, does the founder really have unique insights about the space that they are working on uh, that others don't know because then you're truly solving a pain point? Um, so you, you mentioned that, you know, you came up with this whole idea during those three months, right? What, one of the things I feel like fintech companies really struggle with is what is product market fit? Because if you're launching a consumer company or even B2B SaaS product, you know, you can pretty much 
sell or have a product ready in those three to six months and even have 10 customers. But for fintech companies, it's hard. Can you talk a little bit like you came up with that idea during those three days, but by demo day, did you have any customer? Did you have a product? Like how do you really, because it takes a long time in fintech for product market fit. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the different things about fintech is that starting out is kind of hard because you have to line up a bunch of stuff. Um, and, you know, we came up with a clever hack to actually, you know, start earlier. So, you know, we, we by demo day, we actually didn't have a product, but, you know, uh, we were able to raise our Series A. But then we actually got our first transaction going in June. Um, but, you know, it, it was really hard to actually get that product out because we needed to get partnerships. We needed to give credit, right? So all these licensing things we had to do and regulatory and fundraising, like there's a lot of things that needed to go, right? Um, I think the advantage was that we knew that people needed a credit card, right? Like all of, you know, you, if you work at a company, probably someone has a corporate credit card somewhere. The only thing we had to do is like, how do we work through the back end to make it better than the others? Um, so it, it wasn't a question of, you know, finding if people need what we're building. It was a question of, can we build what we say we will, will build? And if we can, we know that a lot of people will want. So when we actually did build it and launch it last June, it just, you know, exploded really quickly because it was something that a lot of people needed. Mm -hmm. And you took at least... 10, 12 to 15 months after Demo Day to launch publicly? Yeah. So we Demo Day, like the, we raised money in like March. We launched it in June. March the, of 2017? 17. And we launched it June 18. So it was, you know, um, 15 months between, you know, idea and actually launching. Between now and then, we got our first customer probably in August or so. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they didn't even have a dashboard. It was like they, it was kind of like a developer friend who had a startup. So they saw their transactions on the terminal. Um, and that was kind of like, you know, the MVP, but we never launched it publicly until June. We probably, you know, by the time we launched, had 100 customers or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, so talk about, like, what were the two or three important things you, ha you did in those 12 to 15 months? So I think during those 12 to 15 months, um, the thing we focused on is, one, you know, actually getting the product ready, mm -hmm. building, you know, the basic kind of functionality. And two is like figuring out like what people want and what people like about this. Like what is the main, like we're building, we can build a lot of stuff. We can go in a lot of directions. What are the things that people really care about? And we found out that, you know, for Brex, not having a personal guarantee was something people cared about. Having higher limits was something people care about. Expense management is something people care about. And also very fast onboarding, right? If you're a startup, for us, it's very important to build something that you could get like a card in like five minutes. And, you know, that one was actually the toughest one to do. Like this really instant onboarding that we have took probably six months developing mm -hmm. all the, you know, the backend infrastructure, KYC, AML, and all the regulatory requirements to be able to issue a card in like five minutes. And, you know, one of the things we often tell in YC is talk to your users a lot, right? Because then you sort of learn uh, how they're using the product. How did you sort of do that in Brex given... In your early days, you probably had one to five to ten customers versus, you know, it took almost a year for you to get to 100. Yeah. So I think, you know, in, in the beginning, it was we, 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 we had a few learnings, right? The first time it was like we didn't know. We could have imagined this. But in the beginning, we didn't know it's kind of creepy to tell people what they were spending on. So it was like, oh, cool that you went to Starbucks yesterday and people are completely crypt out. <laughs> so we're like, we should stop, you know, not do that and encrypt yeah. all of this. So, you know, we don't have any problems. 
But you know, we 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 we're in regular touch with users, just asking, hey, you know, what do you like about our card? What do you think? And a lot of the feedback we got, you know, was super super helpful to build what the first version of the the product was. And also, like a lot of people got stuck, for example, in, like never onboarding. So we we're like, hey, we need to make this onboarding, you know, more simple. Uh, and what are some of the lessons from the first startup? you know, Pagar.me that you guys, you know, pretty much founded at age 16 and then you launched this uh, two years ago. So what are some of the lessons that you feel were very valuable for you from the first startup that you brought to Brex? I think there's, you know, all the payment lessons and the payment lessons that we have in the fintech lessons is if you rely on a banking partner to do something, you will be slowed down more than you think you will. So, you know, Try to own everything yourself. Otherwise, your product will be, you know, slowed down by the bank. I think that's the first thing we learned that, you know, so we have, we, we do the credit, we do underwriting, we do the technology, we do basically everything. We have a banking partner. Um, but you know, we basically do everything. And getting that was like, and being able to control the entire stack was something that we learned from the first company. Um, the second, you know, more applicable to outside of fintech thing that we learned was, you know, I think that we were very, we were very cash constrained in our first startup. So I think we lost good talent because, you know, we didn't want to pay. And I think for Brex, one thing that we had since the beginning is like, we're not going to lose talent. Like we'll do whatever it takes, but if we want someone, that person is incredible, we'll do whatever it takes to get them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that has been paying out for us a lot, um, you know, and uh, it's very helpful. Got it. And can you talk a little bit about uh, touching on the hiring point? Because you did say that, you know, you focused a lot on talent and recruiting. So talk about, you know, you were one of the few startups that I saw had a GC in your pretty much the first five hires. So talk about the first 10 hires of Brex in those 12 to 15 months. And, you know, why did you decide to hire a GC? So, yeah, on this thing about owning everything, right? Like banks, they are only comfortable letting you do everything if they feel that you know what you're doing. And, you know, we had a lot of experience with payments and engineering, but with U.S. regulation, it's like not something that we were super comfortable with. And a lot of people go of the route of like, oh, I'm going to have like this external lawyer mm-hmm. and he's going to do stuff for me. But we felt that, you know, if we were in a bank's position we wouldn't trust just an external lawyer, right? We want to want someone internally. So we wanted, uh, like, actually our GC hire was our third hire in the company. And it was fundamental for us to get our our banking deals and regulatory stuff done because, you know, there was someone that actually knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And more than, you know, we we could learn some of the stuff, not as much as he, but we could learn some of the stuff. But more than that, it's just also the credibility of, you know, having someone there in the bank, like someone that's supervisioning, seeing you're not going to do some crazy regulatory thing, makes the banks very, very comfortable. Um, and, you know, our CFO is actually our first hire because we thought, hey, this is actually a financial business. We have to raise debt. We have to underwrite. We have to do all these things. So hiring a CFO as like our first employee was actually critical for the company to be what it is today. So the CFO was the first hire. When was the GC? The third. The third hire. Yeah. And then the rest of the team, the first 10 team? Um, and it was actually hard for us to ha- like, you know, hire the rest. It was basically, you know, engineering, design, um, main. And, you know, coming from Brazil without a big network in Silicon Valley, unlaunched without a website, it was actually really hard to recruit the first 10 mm-hmm. people. And honestly, like, you know, I, I wish I had a better story for this. We just spent a lot of money in recruiting fees for these outside recruiters that helped us get, you know, the first 10 people. But after that, um, referrals started going and started 
um, making it better. But, you know, hiring the first 10 people, especially in San Francisco, is really, really hard with the bar that we wanted, right? Mm -hmm. If we wanted to lower the bar, it would be easier. But like with the bar as high as we wanted, it was really tough. Got it. And you mentioned quite a few times about banking partners. You know, one of the things that fintech startups often have to do is they need to have contracts in place with not just the banks, but quite a few of the partners to really build a full stack solution. How do you get these partners to trust you, especially given you're a startup and you probably haven't been in the fintech world as long? Um, so, you know, one, you need a team. Like I said, the TFO and the GC, you know, they're, they're a team that you need to make them trust that you know what you're doing in that side. Mm-hmm. Second, what helped us a lot was credibility. So getting good investors with good credibility, like, you know, makes the banks perceive that you have a higher chance of success. So because in a way, they're also investing in you and somehow, right? So it's a little bit like an equity pitch, you know, when you're raising equity that they need to, you know, believe that you will be a successful company and that their time is worth spending. And three, you need to think ahead. Like, you need to go and the first presentation that you meet them, you already need to have thought of all the problems that they might have and think about that and already present it in a way that, you know, works. And, um, you know, switching gears a little bit. So you launched one year in, in June publicly last year. You had around 100 customers you mentioned. Yep. Um, accelerate that to now February, like probably, you know, close to eight months. Uh, talk a little more about Brex's scale so far. And, uh, you know, what sort of contributed to that scale and that acceleration? So, you know, for us, um, we scaled faster than we, are, we thought we would. Uh, I think, you know, we had a very aggressive plan. And they did have a very aggressive plan. Yeah, and I think we, we <laughs> did say. like 2x what we thought we were going to do. So it scaled really, really fast. And I think, you know, if I want to talk a little bit about the things we did for that was one, we went where other people weren't going. And we went bold. So one of the things that, you know, a lot of people know is for is like the billboard campaign in San Francisco. We basically bought, you know, a shit ton of billboards in San Francisco. And a lot of people recognize us from that. And when we did that, you know, honestly, I wish I could say, hey, I was I, like, you know, our team was like this marketing genius and like knew what was going to happen. But it was basically, you know, for awareness and recruiting and stuff like that. We thought it was a good investment. But it turns out that, you know, a lot of our niche, our market is in San Francisco. And what people do when they go buy offline media is that they want to buy like one billboard. Like, you know, a lot of people are engineers and, you know, they're like, oh, I wanna, I'm going to buy one billboard. I'm going to like try to measure that. And then I'm going to measure that. I'm going to go and scale it up. And you like they're stuck in this mentality of like you have to put one dollar and get out three dollars. Um, and I think what we did is like we, we took a little bit of a bold move and said, we're just going to buy like all that we can. We actually got a really good discount. We paid like three hundred thousand dollars for three months of like a lot of billboards. Um, and which, I think I want to pause there because a lot of people don't expect that, right? Yeah. When you see billboards, you immediately think outdoor advertisement is the most expensive channel advertisement a startup could use. Yeah, no, it, it's not that expensive, especially if you buy a lot of them, it gets, becomes cheaper. Yeah. And the thing about billboards is you have to buy a lot of them to work because, you know, marketing is about repetition. It's about, you know, awareness and people hearing about you many times. So, and, and it's really hard to attribute, but, you know, a lot of times when we, we went to do outbound, and we reach out to a customer and we talk to them. They're like, oh, I saw your billboard already, right? So, like, we had actually a higher response rate on outbound emails because we did this billboard campaign. And, you know, that was, like, super powerful. The, you know, and, and like that, we had, like, a lot of other things that we try to, you know, think a little bit outside of the box. And outside of the box is, you know, outside of uh, Google and Facebook, mm-hmm. honestly. So, so, we did podcasts. We did, like, all these things that started helping a lot. 
um, that is not the traditional pay. And the thing is, it was hard to met like we put a lot of effort to measure the ROI. Yeah. You know, but and the effort we put on that um, paid off because we could use these more different channels. Yeah, and I think what helped also in Drex's case in particular was the niche target market. Like you were so specific that this is for startups, right? Correct. And that helped uh, accelerate that. Yeah. Well. So, you know, people asked us like, hey, why did you know, why, why is your slogan like Brex the best credit card for startups? Like, why did you make that decision? Are you not restricting yourself, you know, to mm-hmm. the startups? And actually, like it was a very conscious decision of, you know, because of brand as well. In the sense that, you know, a lot of our Brex customers are like, oh, why do you use Brex? Oh, because it's for startups. Like, I know it's the best for me, yeah. right? So we have, like, this very strong brand association of founders today that, um, you know, people feel it's for them. So whenever we go to our next niche, like, you know, we're going to be Brex for that niche. Um, and we're going to use that strategy. And that helps with the brand. And it helps also target, you know, and make your distribution strategies more targeted, which helps a lot. Yeah. And one of the other elements we actually talk about a lot in YC is it's not just customer scale um, that happens at this space, like especially if you're hitting a huge pain point, but also how do you scale the company along, right? Because when you, in June, you had probably like 12 employees. Yeah. And how big are you today? Is it 95. 95. So how do you go from 12 to 95 and what do you prepare, in, how do you prepare internally to keep up with that pace? So, you know, I usually have a little bit of a counter advices that is a little bit against what people say. So, one thing that worked really well for us is bringing executives really early on. Mm-hmm. Um, but the type of executives that we brought was a very specific where people who've been in successful startups in the beginning and scale of the startups. Um, so, you know, we bought people from SoFi, Stripes, Zenefits, and all early employees, early executives there that grew the company. And having these people early on helped a lot because, you know, there were people who know what we're, they were doing and they had people from their network that they could, you know, hire. Um, and it was like insanely helpful. So, you know, one of the things that we tell people was like, if you can, you know, you can afford, you have the brand, hire executives earlier on. They'll take just a huge chunk uh, of, you know, your time, like just doing things by themselves. You know, that, that was very helpful. And how early did you bring those execs? So, you know, like GC CFO and CFO, and GC were first like 10. The first 10. Um, our head of sales, he was probably 10th or 11th or mm-hmm. something like that, maybe 13, definitely under 15. And, you know, uh, now we brought our head of engineering. We we're probably, when you hired him, 50 or 60. And, you know, all these people, they managed much larger organizations before, but they also were at the beginnings of startups. So they kind of like had both. Um, and they could do the best of both worlds. So it was pretty early compared to a lot of startups. And, you know, as part of scale, one of the key things for startups, and especially probably more so for fintech startups, is you start with an anchor product or a service or a feature, but then you need to have a clear strategy or vision in terms of where your company is headed, right? And how, what is the long-term vision? And, you know, we often see at YC that this is where you know, we see a clear difference between CEOs that scale versus not. Like, they're able to clearly articulate, like, where the company is headed, at least, like, from three to five years. How do you and Pedro do that? Like, you know, how do you think of, how often do you think about strategy? How often do you think about, 
you know, where where is Brex headed, especially given the idea was born in three months? Yeah, so I think that, you know, we um, we think of, I personally think about that a lot. You know, I have, because we hired all these executives early, I'm, I'm not the kind of CEO that doesn't have one minute to drink water during the day because, you know, the team, like, you know, does a lot of stuff. So I actually have time to think about strategy a lot. Yeah, and I think one thing I would say that was common across um, all your pitches and probably the theme was that, you know, you had a clear, art, both you and Pedro had a clear articulate, you know, like vision for where Brex is headed, even if it's not there today. And I think that's one of the most important things that you can do as CEOs, whether it's pitching to investors or pitching to future employees, right? Because everyone is trying to get behind the mission that you're going after. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, be it partner conversations or, uh, with fundraising, you know, one of the things I've noticed uh, with with you, Enrique, in particular, that you have is you're really good at hitting, um, you know, what's the key thing that the partner is really looking for, um, and really good at negotiation. So, mm-hmm. how where did you learn that? And is that are those are there lessons from your first startup that helped you in the second phase? The two lessons here are one, you know. It's like selling. If you, I, I had to learn how to sell in programming because you know Peter coded better than I did, so he sent me, you know, to the to sell. So you know, you need to listen more before you talk. So listen about the fund, listen about what they believe in, and you kind of show the part of your company you know that they're excited about. Um, and two, negotiation is just about having you know other options, and if you're more comfortable to negotiate, because you know, like, well, if this doesn't work, I'll be a little bit more risky here because if this doesn't work, you know. Um, I at least have that. So you, you get more aggressive if you have another option. So, you know, line up more than one option is the advice.